Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the Fuck a Diet podcast. This is Caroline Dooner. To this day, I still have the impulse to call it the Fuck a Diet radio because that was the name of the podcast for such a long time and my brain has not let it go. (sighs) You are listening to a podcast about diet culture, basically. That's basically what this podcast is about. And today's episode, I am talking to a registered dietitian who specializes in eating disorders and disordered eating, Christina Johnson. And we talk about her perspective on recovery and she answers some listener questions and she talks about how eating disorders can go underdiagnosed, especially in people of color. So it's a great conversation. I'm gonna be sharing it with you soon. But I just wanna go over uh, before then what my week has been like. What has really captivated my attention this past week? First, it was obsessively following the very freaky Army Hammer story about how he is essentially a sexual predator um, and uh, has cannibalistic fantasies. So if you are interested in some fucked up stuff, just you know, go research that. But in happier news, this is the week that I realized that when Siri reads any long ha 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 text message back to you, and I learned this because I was trying out my new AirPods, which are those wireless, you know, Apple earbud things, and I was using them while I was gathering up the trash in my house to take out for trash night because I didn't want to wire in the way of me like folding up and stomping on cardboard boxes and stuff. And I was listening to a podcast episode and all of a sudden, I didn't realize that it did this. I don't know if it's a new feature. I don't know if I can turn this off in my phone settings, but all of a sudden it just alerted me. It like it paused my podcast on its own. And Siri said, you have a new text from Matthew Decker. Matt Decker is one of my very best friends and we text all of the time. And we love to text really long ha 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 ha's when we think that something that the other one texts is funny, like you do. And Siri interrupted my podcast to tell me that Matthew Decker had texted me the weirdest sounding ha ha ha. It was like ha 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 and it went on forever, and I was shocked. I just like stopped in my tracks trying to figure out if this was some sort of glitch or if this was the way she always read ha ha ha. So I did a couple experiments and I found that yes, this is how she read ha ha ha's and also she reads them slightly differently every single time. So I'm going to play two examples for you. Just get ready. You have recent messages from Caroline Dooner. Caroline Dooner said, "Hey, hey, Would you like to reply? Matthew Decker sent a new message. Would you like to reply? No, I would not like to reply, Siri, but I am obsessed. And I will be sending ha-has and hoping that they read them through Siri. So if you want to jump in on this fun, find out a way. So what I learned, this is like, 
obviously not that important, but I do think it's absolutely bizarre and hilarious. So I was trying to recreate it again. And what you don't do is, so if you have an iPhone, I don't know if this, I don't know what it's like if you do this on an Android, I have no idea. But if you have an iPhone and you wanna test it out, you don't press the text and then select speak. That goes like, hey, that's another weird thing, but it's a different weird thing. So if you want this, you have to go, you have to activate Siri and say, Siri, read my last texts. And then if the last texts were ha 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 ha's, you will get some version of what you just listened to. If you want to screen record and document this and then post it on Instagram and tag me in it, I would be so happy to hear all of your weird Siri ha 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 ha's. All right. I don't think I have anything else to say right now. I'm trying to think. Is there anything else I want to say? Um, no. So I asked my Instagram to ask me questions to answer on the podcast, but I've decided I'm not going to answer any of them today. I'm going to save them for future episodes like I do, um, but I actually have Christina, who I'm going to be sharing our chat in in a second. Um, I have her answer some older Instagram questions that were asked for my podcast a couple months ago. So we just continue adding to the list and answering them um, when I have time on this podcast. Okay, so um, I'm going to share my conversation with Christina. But before I do, I just want to quickly share a word from this episode's sponsor. Tanya Mark is a non-diet nutritionist, body image coach, and she's professionally certified in intuitive eating and eating psychology. She gets it. It's not easy ditching diet culture's BS messages, but she has something for you. If you are ready to ditch food guilt and body shame for good, you can grab her free guide, five steps to stop feeling crappy about your body and make eating easy. Just go to tanyamark.com grab the free guide and get started today. You can find the links to find her website in the show notes. I'm Christina. I'm a registered dietitian here in Dallas, Texas, and I primarily see eating disorders. I do see some clients who are working through intuitive eating or um, progressing from disordered eating to intuitive eating. Um, Yeah, that's basically what I do. And a lot of body liberation, a lot of uh, social justice work as it relates to people's relationship with food so that they can have a really authentic uh, relationship with food that cannot be uh, interrupted by diet culture or other systems of oppression. I love that. I, I always want to know if people got into the work that they do through through the anti-diet body liberation space, if that's what brought you to eating disorder work or if it was eating disorder work that brought you to the anti-diet body liberation work? I think for me, it was both in that I've always held them both in my head, but for a long time, they were very separate. Um, And it wasn't until I started to like get into my like, uh, like grad school and into my internship that I realized you could not separate the two. Hmm. Um, You cannot separate someone's lived experience from the way that they choose to nourish themselves. And so once I realized that those two were inextricable, it became a lot easier for me to practice authentically because I already cared about social justice. And so it made it really easy for me to be able to like to talk about it, whether it's talking about it on social media, on my podcast and session with my clients, like 
it is such an authentic part of who I am and what I care about that even though it's like a personal belief, it has no choice but to show up professionally. Um, And so it was really easy for me to sort of navigate that space of like, oh, okay, well, I already believe this here and I'm already passionate about eating disorders. And these two, like, you don't get one without the other. Right. So for the people, maybe the people who are newer to all of these concepts or new new to this podcast, who don't understand necessarily how eating disorder work or just anti-diet work and body image and body liberation work have anything to do. I mean, for people in the very beginning, they don't necessarily understand how much of an overlap there is with social justice work. Can you explain that a little bit to people who are newer to these concepts? Yeah, the way I explain it is like the social justice piece of it is what systems of oppression are impacting a a person, a human being, in a way that they no longer feel safe and thus try to seek safety through their relationship with food. Hmm. So like, is this racism? Is it homophobia, transphobia? Is it disability rights? Like what is, what systems of oppression are impacting this person's everyday life in a way that they no longer feel safe to show up in the world authentically? And thus the way that they navigate this is by doing something with food, manipulating food in some way, shape or form in order to recreate that safety. Right, and it's either trying to create the safety of control with the food or and or it's trying to create safety by changing our bodies or or both right 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 either trying to put themselves or manipulate their bodies into something that is something quote more socially acceptable or trying to create that safety and like oh i don't have to experience my emotions as it relates to this oppression that i'm facing Mm -hmm. if i am numbed out by my relationship with food Right. And that's the thing that people don't really understand as well, that controlling your relationship with food or chronic dieting, and of course, more extreme eating disorders are really effective ways. I mean, not effective, like big picture, but effective in the short term of, of numbing out and of being like, you know, we think that the addiction is to food, but really it's to our relationship with food and our micromanaging our relationship with food. Yes, to, to, to achieving that sort of short-term, uh, quick, like, positive feedback, right? Any sort of behavior that someone's using, whether it's dieting and eating sort of behavior, there is a very quick turnaround and positive feedback. Oh, I did the thing and now I feel better. I don't feel anything. I feel less anxious. I feel less on edge. I feel whatever, like that I feel that numbness that I was seeking. Mm-hmm. And so it's trying to navigate, like, I get that you're trying to seek that out, but that's not like long-term, this is not helpful. Right. I mean, we can compare it to any sort of like drug abuse. It feels great in the short term. It quote unquote helps in the short term, um, but long-term it's not, it's not going to be very helpful. Yes. So we have talked about this before, just you and I, um, about underdiagnosed eating disorders and especially how underdiagnosed eating disorders are in people of color and how people of color are less likely to actually receive treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you talk about that a little bit and explain from your perspective why that is? What a, what a, a tangled web, if you will. Yes, like, yeah. why, why Not simple. The way that it exists. So it partially exists the way that it exists because of the field 
in that to become a certified like specialized eating disorder professional there's a lot of privilege in being able to do that and mm -hmm. being able to afford a supervisor and being able to afford the resources whether it's the classes or again the supervisor afford the studies that it takes to become that um, to take a lower paid position in order to accrue the hours that you need to become an accredited professional as it relates to eating disorders right. and then additionally seeing yourself represented in the field so it's hard to become something if we cannot see yourself there hmm. so you're looking and you're thinking oh i want to work in eating disorders but uh I, again I'm, I'm based in dallas texas the next eating disorder diet black or person of color eating disorder dietitian that i know is not in the state of texas wow like i wow. think i only know one other one and they're in like san antonio wow yeah so it's like, well, I can't go get coffee with them. So like all the ones that I know that I regularly commune with are in Memphis or in Jersey or in California, like that, when you're that spread out, it starts to feel like I don't belong here as a professional. Right, right. But then, and as we, as we look at that, we think, okay, well, how is this being portrayed in the media? But it's being portrayed partially by the people who are treating it. When you look up who's an eating disorder professional, it's a thin, white, usually cisgender female with a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. And so then you think, okay, well, if they're the ones treating it because they're the ones who've already gone through the process because a good portion of eating disorder professionals have gone through their own work, right. um, it becomes, oh, okay, well, eating disorders are for that group of people. Mm -hmm. The research starts to, to allude to, oh, the eating, the eating disorders are for that group of people, when in fact, eating disorders are not for that group of people solely. Eating disorders are for anyone who has a, a brain and is mostly cognitive can fall prey to an eating disorder because it is a set of, there's a, a whole set of things that could uh, sort of kick that off, if you will, right? It's not just like a drive for thinness. There is also um, a personality traits and personality sort of makeups that lend themselves to this. There's also environmental. So what was your uh, family of origin like? What is your life like as an adult and how does that contribute to it? Um, and then sort of societal things that sort of set you up for this as well. And so when we look at the people of color who experience eating disorders, they're not reflected well in the research right. of who gets an eating disorder, but then they're not reflected well in who's treating the eating disorder. How do you go in and talk about your experience as a person of color and these systems of oppression that are affecting your daily life when the person sitting across from you has no experience with it and in some cases won't even acknowledge it? Mm. Yeah. Like that's really hard, really hard for that person that's suffering. And so it creates this really ugly dichotomy where like there's the eating disorder world and then there's this world where all of these people have a really disordered relationship with food and probably have a clinical eating disorder but cannot get the help that they need because so many pieces are in place that say, well, this isn't really for you. Right, and there's a lack of comfort sharing. And even if there is comfort sharing, it's not necessarily going to be received the way it needs to be received for someone to get treatment. Yeah, they're not received well or their, um, their experience is dismissed or discredited, or it's like, well, we don't really, we're, we're not gonna talk about that here. And it's like, but this is directly impacting someone's relationship with food. Right, right. So, you know, this is, it's always so difficult to, to begin to talk about what the solution is because there are so many different pieces that, that need to happen in order to get to a better place with this. But in your 
experience and opinion, what are some of the things that will really help with this problem? Uh, <laughs> Again, I'm asking such difficult questions. It's, it's okay. I mean, it's not like we don't think about this, right? right like, I think right. one of the number one things is getting rid of the uh, BMI as a marker for in, in, for insurance purposes, right? Like mm. someone can get out, like outpatient care sooner than they can get a higher level of care because insurance says, no, we're not going to accept you based on BMI, even though they are very clinically, critical, like critically and clinically not doing well. Right. But insurance is going to say, oh, well, BMI, so no. So that's the first thing we need to do. We need to get rid of BMI as a marker of any sort of eating behavior uh, as it relates to getting someone an appropriate level of care. Uh, Secondly, uh, increasing the diversity within the field, but that's such a long-term goal. The more immediate goal would be increasing our understanding and respect and and gratitude towards the diversity of our clients. Yes. Like, do your, do your research as a professional, learn things, immerse yourself in other cultures, like really understand your client's lived experiences and then hold space for them. Even if you cannot relate to it because you've never experienced it, that does not mean you can't hold space for it and really create that space for them to be able to work these things out. And like that to me is gonna, gonna take us a long way because once we do that as a profession, like a group of people, it makes it easier for people with diverse experiences to come in because then they feel like they're going to be taken care of and feel safe in that environment. Yes. Yes. Just the simple awareness that a racism is a trauma and trauma leads to, you know, can be one of the factors leading to eating disorders, having a better, first of all, cultural awareness around that, but also awareness in the field that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really sitting with as a professional sitting with your own, privilege and being able to address that in session and not feeling shy about addressing that in session if it comes up in a session and not being shy about addressing that as it relates to professional dynamics with your your peers like you need to talk about it it's not going anywhere right right as opposed to just brushing it under the rug and acting like anyone is going to feel comfortable talking about their own experiences and then the BMI piece that you mentioned that's a whole big, big piece of the misunderstanding of what eating disorders look like. Because eating disorders have a, a quote, a look. Right. Like that's our first issue is that we think eating disorders have a look. And that is based on just so much misunderstanding about how the body works and how, how starvation works and how weight set ranges work. And you're so right that there are just so many pieces and this is such a tangled web of of re-education, really. Yeah, this one, this one's going to be one of those like, which I think we've, I feel like we've been talking about for a long time of like dismantling things. In many ways, I think we need to dismantle eating disorder field and rebuild it. Yes. Like we're at that point where it's like it's really difficult to fix this broken thing. Like the foundation is off. Like you have to start over, like demolish it, redo the foundation, and build back up. Yeah, I mean, even just the fact that there are so many eating disorder professionals who are not on board with health at every size and who are still working from such a weight centric paradigm. Is that something that you have run into a lot in the field? Yes. And it makes it hard to like, it makes it hard to refer out when I'm like, when I, cause I was sharing with you earlier of like, I work um, at an intensive outpatient level of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So I see my clients for nine hours a week, plus an additional one hour nutrition session. 
So right. it, once I, once they complete their time with me and I'm getting ready to send them out back into like outpatient where they're, you know, um, sort of going back into the regular swing of their life, I have to find them an outpatient dietitian. And that starts right. to get really difficult when I want to make sure that therapeutically they're not only are they eating disorder, you know, specialized or have experience with eating disorders, but they're also health at every size. Right. Because it would be a lot of work for me to teach my client all these things and then send them outpatient. And then that outpatient provider says the exact opposite of like, oh no, well, we're not going to let your body change too much. Or, oh no, we're not going to eat too much of this or too much of like, it gets really, really murky really quickly. Yeah. I mean that, and that's the kind of stuff that eating disorders just kind of like latch onto and they're like, oh, okay, okay. So we're, the eating disorder is relieved that it might actually have a chance of, of hanging around, you know? Very much so. And my, my clients know, I absolutely will not let anything stay. If even sounds like it's diet culture, it's got to go. Yeah. Oh, we just need more people like you in the field, honestly, really. It's, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating how prevalent diet culture is in the eating disorder field. It's really disheartening. (laughs) It's kind of scary. Like when you stop and really look at it and you're like, whoa, why would you suggest that for your client? Like they're going to take that and run with it. You already know that they have a distorted understanding of what's happening. Like eating disorders distort reality. So then you're providing them with fodder for the, for the fire. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't, (laughs) I don't, it really, it's the, it's so much dissonance to me. I don't, you know, I was talking to Shira Rose on my podcast. It was her, my conversation with her came out like two months ago and she was talking about her experience at a recovery center that was supposed to be health at every size aligned, but, but wasn't like, she was not allowed to eat the things that the thinner people there were allowed to eat. And there were all of these things that actually in practice, it was the exact same thing, except their mission statement was health at every size. So like, there's a lot of bait and switch there too. Like people don't know where they can go to get kind of a safe experience. Yeah, unfortunately. And I have a lot of compassion for like, obviously I have a lot of, hopefully it's apparent that I have a lot of compassion for my like professional peers of, we were all pretty much educated in the same system. So even though I am very staunchly health at every size, very staunchly intuitive eating, that was not something that I learned while I was in undergrad. That was right. not like a, a course that I took. That was something I had to learn on my own. Yeah. And it's a constant continual learning and unlearning, learning and unlearning and dismantling things within myself where I'm like, oh, this isn't helpful. This is still diet culture. And so when I think like, you know, you've had this, you know, program running for a long time, it's difficult to sort of change the nuts and bolts of a program that's been yeah. running for a long time. It's difficult, like the longer you've been in your career, it's difficult to sort of t- change your therapeutic orientation because you're so used to having done something a particular way for a long time. And yeah. like, so I'm like, no, I understand. Like, I, I understand why it's happening the way that it is. Does that make it okay? No, not even a little bit, but I do understand it. And I do have compassion and I'm like, don't stop here. Don't, you didn't get here just to stay here. Right. You didn't get this far into your understanding of health at every size to, to just stay here. Right. And it goes back to you saying it just needs to be dismantled and built from the ground up eating disorder treatment. Oh, um, is there anything else that, um, so a lot of people who listen to this podcast do have eating disorders, diagnosed eating disorders, restrictive eating disorders. Mm-hmm. People do not, or do not technically have eating disorders and have just struggled with the diet binge cycle and chronic dieting and disordered eating, whether it was diagnosed or not. 
Um, is there any, P I'm going to move on to asking you three questions that I have gotten from listeners in the past that I've, I wanted to ask somebody who is a practitioner to kind of like be more than just me talking about these things. I think it's sometimes nice when other people answer questions, but before we get there, is there anything you think would be important or helpful for the listeners to know about recovery from your perspective? Um, I think the thing that I always like come back to, especially when I'm talking to my own clients is like, you didn't get this far to get this far. Mm. Like you've come a long way in your recovery and I'm so proud of you, but also there's so much more freedom for you available on the other side. You'll just keep going. I love that. Um, I really genuinely want my clients to have like the most full, authentic, vibrant life that they can possibly have based on their own circumstances. Like I get that that looks different for everyone, but I genuinely want that for all of my clients. And then like your experience is valid. Like, regardless of what another professional has told you, regardless of what people in society have told you, regardless of what your friends, your family have told you, your experience is out. That's so nice. And it is really important to remind people that there, that there is freedom on the other side and it doesn't have to be like this forever. It does not. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask you some of these questions and the first one, and I get this one a lot. Um, this one is about those studies that suggest that low calorie diets extend life. How do we sort of navigate hearing about those studies when people talk about those studies? How do we personally kind of like unpack those studies within the, the framework of health at every size? Yeah, I actually was talking to my intern about this earlier because I was like, oh man, I remember hearing about this in school and just kind of chucking the information because I was like, this is just not helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I sat and kind of thought about like what's happening here, I put my social justice hat on and said, okay, well, what else is happening? I cannot just say, oh, you know, restricting your calories is going to be the thing that extends your life. Like what's your healthcare look like? What do your communal relationships look like? What is your access to movement look like? What does your access, like what's your spiritual life look like? And that's not just like religion, but just like your connection to like life. Mm -hmm. uh, like there's so many other factors that go into this that I cannot just say food was the one sole thing that, you know, got you to that centurion, like living a hundred plus years. Yeah. And, and I'm almost positive that those studies, the people who they were quote unquote studying, there were other fact. I think this is exactly what you're saying, right? There were so many other factors that went into what extended their life. Yes. There was like movement and it doesn't have to be like this big elaborate movement, but just like for some of them, it was just like going for walks or whatever. And it's not like an everyday piece of like movement. It was just like, you know, at least once a week, a couple of times a week, they were engaging in joyful movement or their connection to community. Cause we, forget how important community really truly is like it is documented in the research not just in this type of research but in lots of types of research that people live longer and have a better quality of life when they have community whether that's family friends um, being in, a, in a, a communal environment with their um, with like neighbors who live around them like being able to have human connection that is yeah. full of joy and provides you with these positive, happy feelings that is going to extend your life and create a better quality of life than having less food. So, so true. And what a timely thing to talk about it when people feel to talk about that, when people feel 
so isolated from everyone in their life. I mean, this is a really, really hard chunk of time for humanity, really. Very hard chunk of time. And like my people always ask me, like, why do I still go to the office? Like, I mean, prior to like us coming back, like bring our, our clients back in person. Like, why do you still go to the office when you can work from home? And I was like, if that was the case, then I would never see any other human beings in life, in real life because I, I live by myself. Yeah. And no, so I was completely. like, no, like, I'm going to go into the office so that I at least have human interaction. Like, that's important for my mental health. This is important for everyone's mental health. I totally feel you. And I would do the exact same thing if I could. My version of that was going to a cafe and working for like two to three hours every morning because I, you know, I'm a writer and I, I work by myself and I work from home as, you know, I work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my way of seeing people, being around people, talking to the people who worked there. It was like my little routine and it was like my little office. And I cannot tell you, Christina, how horrible, how horrible I feel not doing that. Like it, it, it's bad. <laughs> it's that just having that as a part of your routine is so important for your quality of life. I know. Right? When we talk quality of life, like the days where you wake up and have a purpose for getting out of the bed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Having that human connection is significantly more important and more tangible than eating less. Yes. I agree with you. And there are many studies, as you said, that, that confirm that as well. So, yeah. So basically your answer to this question is look at the other factors that are affecting the outcome of a study that says that lower calorie extends life. There are so many other things that go into it. Yes. Things that are much more tangible than that, like having a community, engaging in joyful movement, whatever that looks like for you and your, your physical abilities, like having good like therapy like being able to talk out the things that are happening in your life so you're not holding on to them and and trying to push them down like so many other things that you could be doing to extend your life and again we have to talk quality of life because do you really want to extend your life when you're like not having the best time like nope (laughs) like is this a quality of life that is extended like if you made it to this hundred years are you still taking care of yourself and still pretty independent at that hundred year mark Yeah. And have you enjoyed your life along the way? Yes. Another very important question. Um, That's a great answer. Thank you for that. The second question is, what are some of the common ways that the body is signaling hunger that may not be obvious as like stomach grumbling? Uh, Difficulty focusing. And this is not the same as like attention, like deficit or like ADHD, but like Mm -hmm if you can usually focus and then you find yourself reading the same page a few times and being like, what? what? I don't remember reading anything. You might be hungry. Right. <laughs> if you're having a hard time following a train of thought where you just get really distracted or like I always, um, my signal for myself is I'm a pretty articulate person. If I stop being articulate and I'm having a hard time expressing myself, I'm hungry. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And the difficulty focusing, I can, I can feel that when I'll be like, oh, I'm a little hungry, but I'm going to push through and like write for another 20 minutes. And then I go back to do it. And I'm like, oh my God, I really, I really can't, I got to eat. Like that is a prime example of the difficulty focusing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Sudden shifts in mood. So if you felt pretty like even, and all of a sudden you're feeling more anxious or feeling more irritated, agitated, irritable, like might be time to eat. Otherwise known as hangry. Yep. Good old fashioned hangry. 
there's there's quite a few that like go unnoticed for a lot of people where I'm like maybe you're hungry and then they'll try to give me like 17 other answers and I'm like no it's been a while since you ate like I think you're hungry I know I know and there I mean there are even ones that are like um I've heard people say headaches it's hard because like these are these are symptoms of lots of other things too yeah um but there, you know, people do have different ways of manifesting hunger that isn't just stomach rumbling. Yes, very much so. And it's very like, uh, it's very individual and it's important to like, I always have my clients like check in with themselves of like, what are your actual, like, um, I pulled up a, a slideshow cause I actually did a slideshow on this not that long ago. Um, so like, yeah, there's the stomach, but then also do you have this like gnawing feeling in your throat or like a dull ache in your throat? Are you having a hard time thinking straight or feeling lightheaded? Um, are you having thoughts about food? Like, are you thinking oh, about yeah. nachos? That's like, a if, big you're, one. <laughs> if you're thinking about nachos or you're scrolling through Pinterest, pinning recipes, watching other people on the internet do like mukbangs and like what I eat in the day, you're probably hungry. That is a huge one. That is a really, really big one. And, you know, when you're further into the process, healing your relationship with food or, you know, having a healed relationship with food, it's the kind of thing where when you're hungry, you think about food and you really want to eat. And when you're not hungry, you don't think about food and you don't want to eat. And it can become that simple sometimes. And so much headspace is freed up. Yes. Oh my gosh. Like, when you're not like when you're in a well-fed like state and your your relationship with food is really driving like you spend less than 25 percent of your day thinking about food it's amazing it real and i genuinely like i was the kind of person who was sure i was a food addict and would always be a food addict and um i was wrong but i i really genuinely never thought that i would be the kind of person who didn't think about food all day long i didn't think it was possible so possible so possible <laughs> any other ones before i move on to the last question? uh feeling like fatigued dullness or apathy towards responsibilities and this is not the same as like depression apathy towards responsibilities it's like oh i need to like load the dishwasher and i just don't even feel like loading the dishwasher or, like right oh i just i don't even feel like finishing my day of work like i just cannot like it's like that like two o'clock slump and you got a few hours left and you're like maybe it's because you need a snack yeah when in doubt, maybe you need a snack. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, let's move on to the last question. So this question I also get often, and it is, is it normal to lack energy during recovery and during recovery weight gain? So usually the question is, is it normal to lack energy during weight gain? But because they're specifically talking about weight gain that's happening during recovery, um, I'm, I'm going to call it recovery weight gain. Yeah, I expect you to be tired. It freaks people out so much. They're like, wow, this is a sign that this is bad and unhealthy and I'm getting unhealthier and I should jump ship. No, 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 no. First of all, recovery is a full-time job. Let's start there. Uh, that is a full-time job because you are actively thinking about doing the opposite of the things you would normally do. Yeah. So that's one. Two, you got a lot going on there internally. Uh, from a sort of physiological standpoint, like your body is doing a lot of work to repair itself. If you are in need of weight restoration as a part of your recovery, your body is having to do a lot of work to repair itself, to repair 
any sort of organ damage that occurred, um, re relaying down the bone uh, density that may have been disrupted, uh, relaying down muscle mass, re relaying down fat stores for protection, hormone uh, management. Uh, so there's a lot of things that are happening internally and that requires a lot of energy. Mm. So your body is like shuttling energy towards that so that it can heal itself. So yeah, you're probably gonna feel more tired. Also, in theory, you're probably doing therapy and you're doing some really tough therapy. That's exhausting. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this, maybe who who were never diagnosed with a restrictive eating disorder or, or who were more just chronic dieters, maybe experiencing some similar symptoms, but may like um, think that maybe it doesn't apply to them because they were never diagnosed with a restrictive eating disorder. And in my experience and understanding, there is still a lot of overlap between healing from chronic dieting, which sometimes is even atypical anorexia, even though it's never, it's not always diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and, and restrictive eating disorders. So do you have um, any, any reassurance for people who are saying, oh, but you know, I was a dieter and a binger, so I really shouldn't be tired. No, I mean, we would not be upset with a baby for taking naps all the time as they're growing. That's true. That's so true. Like we're not upset with kids who need to take a nap. We want the kids to take a nap. You're like, oh, you're still growing. You need to take a nap. Somehow as adults, we've made it to this place where we're like, I don't need a nap. I am too mature for that. <laughs> take a nap and let your body like heal itself. It is okay. It's okay if you did not receive the diagnosis that was appropriate for you, but you're still having the same sort of outcome that someone would have with the diagnosis, like take a nap. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Again, when in doubt, you might be hungry or you might need a nap. <laughs> yes. You might need to be nicer to yourself. And you probably need both if we're just being honest. Like, you probably need a snack and a nap. Yep. Ugh, some of the best times, snack, then a nap, a well-fed nap. Oh, that sounds luxurious. It really does. Oh, thank you so much for talking to me. Is there anything else um, you would you want to share uh, before we end this conversation and you let us know where we can find you? I think I covered everything. You can find me on the internet. I am on Instagram at Encouraging Dietitian. Um, that's actually where I spend most of my time. I have a very defunct podcast that like 2020 cramped my style. Uh, so it was really hard to like sit down and record episodes as I'm just trying to manage all the other pieces of my life. But there are two seasons up there of intuitive eating for the culture. Oh, that's so great. The great thing about podcasts is that they just, if you don't take it down, it's just still there. It's still great content for people to, to consume, even if it was two years ago, you know? Yes, thankfully it is definitely still there. I'm not taking it down. I'm like sort of getting my schedule together, getting my energy levels together to sort of head back in that direction of recording because I do miss that. I do miss that that part. And it's it's a free resource and I like providing that since obviously I can't work with everyone. Right. I love that. So it's called Intuitive Eating for the Culture. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to listen to it. That's so great. Thank you so much, Christina. This was wonderful. You're welcome. As usual, you can find all of the links to find Christina and Christina's podcast in the show notes of this episode. And uh, if you want to make Siri say some ha-ha-has, 
tag me on Instagram because I want to hear them. Okay, I will be back in two weeks and I can't wait. Talk to you soon. Okay, all right. Goodbye, guys. Mm-hmm.